Welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the big island of Hawaii. And today I'm pleased to have as my guest, Sharon Hosko. And Sharon and I actually were on a trip together that was on the other side of the planet this past March, and we'll talk a bit about that. But we didn't talk about kind of some of the things we're going to get to today. Like, let's start with how are you today and how is life in uh, Cleveland? I am doing great, and it is a beautiful sunny day in Cleveland. We're kind of having that here in uh, Kona, Hawaii as well. Where did you grow up and kind of what got you into the field of biology? Uh, yes, I grew up uh, just southwest of Cleveland, Ohio, in a little suburb. And um, I guess from the time I was a three or four year old kid, I was always playing outside in the backyard. My mom said I was always turning rocks over looking for potato bugs and worms and anything else I could find outside. And then on summer weekends, when I was growing up, my mom and dad would take my sister and I to Cleveland Metro Parks and we would walk along the, the creeks and the rivers just looking for rocks and we'd bring a few home, put them in our garden area. And it seemed like we did that every Saturday or Sunday, every summer, but I'm not sure we did it every weekend, but it seemed like it. And I think um, that may subconsciously have had an effect on me because once I became a naturalist, uh, my main area of interest was aquatic biology. So all those walks along the river may have helped me um, decide that. And then once I got into high school, I had a really good high school biology teacher and, and I really enjoyed that. So when I went to college, um, I also had really good professors and, and they helped kind of help me find my niche in biology. We share that interest. I, uh, I lived about, oh, I don't know, 300 yards from a little stream called the Town Branch. And I used to go down there and sane for crawdads. And uh, I would sell the crawdads to the local bait store. And the money that would give me would be enough to go buy a bigger sane net and a bigger aquarium. And then I was <laughs> taking home pond sliders and uh, fish of various kinds out of the stream and occasionally a salamander. And I, I just took great joy out of splashing in the water and looking for living critters. So, and uh, like you, I, I went on to college to major in biology. At, at 10 years old, if asked what I was going to do when I grew up, I would say, I want to be a biologist. And everybody in my family, because my brother was a preacher, would say, well, don't you want to be a preacher? And I go, really do not. I want to be a biologist. <laughs> So where did you go to college? I went to a small division three college called Baldwin Wallace College right in Berea, Ohio. And uh, I went in as a biology major and I was going to be a medical technologist working in a hospital lab, running tests and looking through microscopes all day, every day. So when I was a sophomore in college, I, I had to take microbiology and oh, I hated that class. It was the worst experience ever. So right then I knew being a med tech was not for me. So I kept looking around, taking other biology classes because I still liked biology. I just didn't like the microbiology aspect. So I took uh, invertebrate zoology 
And that was a, I really enjoyed that class. And, and we had to do a five day field trip to the New Jersey salt marshes and the Atlantic coast. And all that was, I just loved it. I just loved being in the field. We were wet, we were muddy, we were dirty. And you know what? I didn't care. It was so much fun. And then I took an ecology field studies class, which we, that was another trip where we had another class where we had to take a trip and we went down to the Florida Keys and the Everglades. And oh my gosh, that was mind blowing. We snorkeled on the reef. And I think the best thing we did a night dive and we were snorkeling in a, not a very deep area, but right near shore. And we got to see bioluminescence. So we were just waving our hands in front of our face and, and the water was lighting up with all those little planktonic organisms. And, and then we went to the Everglades and we were, we were birding and just having a, a really enjoyable time there. So I, I really found my niche once I started taking those field courses. Well, I felt the same way, but I had a very different experience. I was in a zoology major and I was going to be a biology teacher. Like I think you were thinking that at some point in your career as well, weren't you? I was. Yeah, I was. Well, I, I had a teacher scholarship, which back then in Illinois in the 60s, you didn't have to qualify for a teacher scholarship. All you had to say is, I want one. They were so short of teachers. This is pre, um, I'm actually slightly a pre-boomer, uh, born in 45, and uh, they consider boomers 46 on. And there was such a teacher shortage, they just give it to you without question. And it paid all my tuition through school. And I really, like you, I admired my high school biology teacher so much that I thought, well, I want to do what he does. And uh, I student taught, and uh, I actually enjoyed it. But my bachelor's degree in zoology was uh, we dissected things. Uh, you know, every test was a bunch of those. Remember those wax filled trays with things pinned? Yes. And we cut up a lot of things. And I was so frustrated with it that when I, I went into a master's degree in botany out of kind of frustration with the zoology department and they took you out in the field and did things outside with you. And I, uh, zoology, you know, it was comparative anatomy, embryology, parasitology, protozoology, invertebrate zoology. And by the time you had done your requisite courses, the only live animal I saw in a bachelor's degree was either a protozoan or a rooster. And I say rooster because in one of the classes, they had us uh, watch 17 or 18 roosters in a little building kind of fight with each other uh, and <laughs> kind of a giant cockfight, which sounds <laughs> funny, but without the weapons they put on those fighting roosters, they didn't hurt each other, but you, we had to map their interactions. And I thought it was kind of interesting, but it wasn't exactly wildlife and it wasn't ornithology. And I, I really was frustrated, but um, master's degree, I studied algae. And like you, I spent so many hours looking through a microscope, I decided that was also not my destiny. And yet I went to California to work on a PhD in uh, marine phycology and oceanography. And uh, I thought, well, that'll be big algae out in the ocean and you go diving or 
snorkeling or in a boat, and that'll be great. And my major professor called me in after three weeks and said, I'm going to retire. And they're going to replace me with a microbiologist and you can do electron microscopy or something. And I went, no, no, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, life goes on. So you got out of college. What was your first job? I worked in a photo lab. Oh, that doesn't sound biological to me. No, it it took me a couple years to to really um, get in, uh, you know, find a good job. After I graduated, I I actually got an internship with the Smithsonian in Edgewater, Maryland, and and I was doing research on blue crabs and clams that lived in um, Chesapeake Bay. And I I did that for about nine months, and at the end we had to do this seminar about our research and our experience. And so I did that and I, I really, really enjoyed getting up presenting. So when I came back from that uh, internship, I went back to Baldwin Wallace and I decided that's where I was gonna get my teaching certifica certification. So I got certified to teach junior high and high school biology. And the it, that took about two years to get that certification. And while I was doing that, I, I was a hall director at the college. I was the assistant volleyball coach and I was a, a lab assistant. And the professor I was working with in the biology department, he got an NSF, a National Science Foundation grant, trying to work with the local Berea City School District, trying to get them to bring their students to Cleveland Metro Parks. And you know they, he, he wanted them to get the students out of the classroom and learn about science in the park where they had hands-on. And, and a lot of that was working in the river. And so since that involved Cleveland Metro Parks, that's how I got to know Bob Hinkle. And he happened to be the chief of outdoor education for Cleveland Metro Parks at the time. And also Ken Gober, who was the nature center manager at Rocky River Nature Center. So I worked with them. It was a full school year that we worked with these teachers in Cleveland Metro Parks. So that's really how I, I got to know Cleveland Metro Parks. And a, a seasonal naturalist position opened up at Ken's Nature Center, which was Rocky River Nature Center. And, and I applied for it and I got it. And I just loved doing that. I really, before that, I don't think I had ever known what a naturalist was but I, I learned quickly and I, I really, you know, I had a lot of the identification skills, uh, but I, I really learned how to connect people with nature. And finally, two years later, a full-time position came open with Cleveland Metro Parks. Oh, that's great. I, I had a similar experience. I worked at the outdoor labs, which was my first job. And it was uh, Southern Illinois University's outdoor education facility. And it was a great experience because I had a, uh, the dean of the outdoor labs. Boy, he, he really had a, an amazing education. He had been the youngest dean at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. His name's Dr. Paul Yambert. And uh, I know he had as a professor, George Mix Sutton, which you may not remember, but back in the 70s and 80s, Dr. Sutton had a lot of his beautiful bird paintings in Audubon Magazine. He was an incredible bird artist. And so Paul would talk a lot about kind of uh, 
Sand County Almanac and Aldo Leopold huh. about uh, Dr. Sutton. And he was inspiring to work for. It was a great start. And I had this, it, it wasn't a nature center, but it, it was this residential camp that part of the year I worked with high school students and environmental workshops. And the other part of the year, I did nature programs for children and for special needs groups. We would have a two week uh, uh, camp with children who were deaf or blind. We would have uh, two weeks of camps with children with cerebral palsy. Uh, each, each of the special needs groups really helped me begin to understand that there were also a lot of people in those categories of special populations that wanted to be out in nature, but nature wasn't as accessible to them. And the interesting thing is this camp since the 1950s had ramps down into the water so that they could take kids in a wheelchair onto a lake beach and go swimming or catch fish or or do things in water, they could take them canoeing. And uh, it was a great place to work. It was a great first job. But my next one was a park naturalist at the state park nearby. So naturalist, was that your, your term? Were you still hiring naturalists when you became a manager or had, had the, the term changed at all? Um, the term naturalist was still part of Cleveland Metro Park's uh, job descriptions, yes. They were still called naturalists. They still are. Oh, they well, still our, are. Yeah, ours changed over time. We changed it to interpreter, but uh, much of our programming was cultural as well. We were teaching about pioneer life and that sort of thing. So, thing. So, did you get introduced to Cleveland Metro Parks as a child, or or was this just as a, after college? Oh no, I my family and I went to Cleveland Metro Parks. I, all the time. We used to go to the nature center and, you know, they had aquariums there. They had live turtles and they, you know, great trail system. So I, I, I grew up with Cleveland Metro Park. So it was, you know, it's, it was real nice for me to be able to get into the park system and have a 31 year career with them. I, I really enjoyed it. So how did this term uh, emerald necklace come about? Who who came up with the concept of, because that that's unique to Cleveland Metro Parks. I've never heard of that anywhere else. It is. So yeah, the, the Cleveland Metro Parks is known as the Emerald Necklace. The, um, there are several reservations that go all, they, they circle the city of Cleveland. So that's how it got the necklace name. And, and it's just wonderful. No matter where you live in the Cleveland area, you're probably within five or 10 minutes of one of the reservations. And it, it started, the park was, um, became a park system in 1917. And probably within, probably in the 1920s is when they started getting enough reservations and they, they got them around the city, even though they only had a few at the beginning, but they scattered them around the city of Cleveland. And, and now there's, gosh, I think there's 21 or 22 reservations. That's amazing. Thousands of acres, tens of thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's over 23,000 acres right now. Yeah. Every year it goes up and I've lost track since I retired, but when oh. I was still there, I was like 23,000 acres. And you kind of have a big lake shore there as well. Yeah. 
Oh gosh, yeah, Lake Erie. And in fact, in the last five years, uh, Cleveland Metro Parks has has gotten part of the lakefront. So there's another there's a lakefront reservation now too. What was Cleveland built around? Was it shipping on the lake, or what? What was it famous for early on? Yeah, I think it was the the shipping industry. Yeah. What were there steel mills also? Uh, there were, and there still are. There still are a lot of shipping and still a lot of steel mills in the city of Cleveland. And, you know, now we have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, it's it's the Cleveland area has really grown and become a travel destination for a lot of people. It's it's made a lot of progress in the last 30, 40 years. And don't I remember some sort of a public market in a big building downtown in Cleveland? Yeah, there. Um, huge market and people it's open on Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I think. I found it interesting because um, when Lisa and I went to a conference in Sweden, we were in markets that were in giant buildings in Sweden. And I just, that reminded me of, it was very European looking, the marketplace building. Yeah. And it's been renovated a little bit lately and the West side market is what it's called, but yeah, it's right in, in the heart of downtown Cleveland. And Cleveland was kind of famous for having a river catch fire. <laughs> yeah, the Cuyahoga River caught fire in, oh gosh, what was it, 67, I believe. Or, and uh, But now that river has made a comeback and, you know, there's a nice fish population, macroinvertebrate population. Uh, people are canoeing and kayaking on the river. It, it really has... The EPA and, and a lot of those organizations have stepped in and, and made it a beautiful area now. I always think that, uh, you know, Chicago also, I grew up in Illinois. I grew up in Southern Illinois, but I went to Chicago on business fairly frequently. And Chicago has a huge uh, system of reserves. They're not all interconnected under one name like yours in Cleveland. Uh, Cook County Forest Preserve, DuPage County, Will County. And uh, it's just impressive that these big Midwestern cities that are sprawling, that have tremendous traffic and kind of complicated political histories also have figured out how to protect uh, native forests, in some case, native prairie lands, kind of create recreational space that continues to allow especially young people to connect with nature. You mentioned that one of your early roles was this figuring out how to get kids out to a park or out to a natural Mm -hmm. area. You stayed with Cleveland Metro Parks 31 years. That's kind of amazing by itself. I moved around a lot (laughs) and (laughs) I I don't regret it. It was the right thing for me. But what caused you to stay there 31 years? Well, I really, I believed in the mission of the park. I, I enjoyed my work. I loved, I had a great staff and, um, you know, my family was here. So all those things together, really, I, I didn't want to leave. And, you know, I started as a seasonal naturalist and then I went to a full-time na- or a full-time naturalist. And then um, I was asked to help out at a, at Brexville Nature Center as the temporary nature center manager. And I, I really wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but Bob and Ken convinced me I should try it. And I said, well, the only way I'm gonna try it is if you put it in writing that if I don't like it, I can come back to Rocky River Nature Center as a naturalist. <laughs> you know, I didn't want someone else taking my job. So, 
for a couple months, I, I went to Brexville Nature Center and I, I was the manager there and, and I, I really loved it. I, I enjoyed it. So um, they eventually posted that position and I applied for it and got it. So I kind of moved, I kept moving my way up in the, in the system and, and, you know, I really didn't want to do anything else. I, I loved being part of Cleveland Metro Parks and I enjoyed helping people make those connections with nature. And, you know, we had a lot of program options that we, we could do. So it was, we had a variety of programming and, and I just really enjoyed the way Cleveland Metro Parks was run. When in this journey did you discover the term interpretation and NAI, National Association for Interpretation? Because that's where you and I would have met first. Right. Yes. I joined NAI in 1991, and it was just a couple years after I went full time as a naturalist. And um, I really enjoyed being part of the NAI family during the rest of my career. And I loved attending those Region 4 workshops every spring and and I also went to a lot of national workshops and you know I was very lucky that Cleveland Metro Parks allowed us to uh, do training and they supported us with money to do that so that was a really nice thing and but yeah NAI was a great way to meet fellow naturalists fellow managers interpreters you know learning the tricks of the trade just bouncing ideas off of people it was just a great way to come together with people that did the same job as you and, and just talk about how, how their life was different than yours or how it was the same as yours. And, you know, I, I became a certified interpretive guide and I became a certified interpretive planner. So I, I had both of those certifications and, and they, they both were very helpful to me as a professional. That's great. Region four was well-known, uh, certainly amongst uh, our entire organization, for just being very active. What states did that encompass? Uh, it was Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Ontario, Canada. Ontario, yeah. And did you ever meet up there? You know, there was one, they did have a conference, and it was up near Algonquin. And, um, you know, I couldn't go to every single one, so we had to rotate it around, and, and that was a year I didn't get to go. Well, that was a leading question because I got to go to that one. Yeah. <laughs> Part of, I mean, I, I became executive director of NAI in 95. And I tried to get to a regional, well, two or three regional workshops every year. And uh, that one was especially attractive to me because I had not been to that part of Canada and I was fascinated. And Algonquin was amazing. Uh, I think first time I saw timber wolves and they, they got them howling off the back patio or porch or whatever of the visitor center there. And it was extraordinary. And you got to go there again recently. Yeah. Oh yes. I've been going up to Algonquin probably since the middle nineties and oh yeah, I've heard the wolf howls and oh gosh, doesn't that just give you yeah. tingles down fine. And oh yeah, it's amazing to hear those animals howl back. Well, and I saw a lot of moose, which is, I'd never been any place before where I saw a lot of moose. Yeah, Algonquin has lots of moose. They they have some deer also, white-tailed deer. Um, they have river otters, and they have um, all kinds of, they have porcupines, which I've, I've only seen dead ones up there. I've never seen a live one. They have pine martens, um, just 
incredible animals. I, when I lived in uh, Pueblo, Colorado, I got up one morning. I lived out on the edge of town, kind of the, I don't know what you'd call it, dry grasslands, semi-desert was right next to my house. And I got up one morning, my dogs were barking and kind of fearfully, and I went in the backyard and they all had porcupine quills in their face. And <laughs> I had full grown porcupine in the backyard. I don't know how it managed to find my yard. But I did have a garden pond, which probably was a water attraction for yep. critter. And boy, the dogs learned the hard lesson that you don't want to get too near one. And oh, uh, yeah. It was quite an experience. Who did you take the interpretive guide course with? Uh, interpretive guide, I took that with Bob Hinkle and Foster Brown. And that was offered actually right in at Cleveland Metro Parks. Yeah, I didn't say it earlier, but I, I not only know Bob Hinkle well, but Ken Gober and Chris Brabrander and Foster Brown and the the staff of Cleveland Metro Parks made it to a lot of national conferences with NAI, including you. And I really got to know a lot of the people through that. But uh, then you attended a planning course with me and with Lisa, um, my wife and training partner. And actually got to go to Colorado to do that that I did one, there was nothing closer to me that fit into my schedule. So I got to go out to Colorado and um, spend about, a, I think it was about a, what, four day, five day class? Five day. Yeah. So I was probably there about a week. Yeah. That class, we did it four or five times a year. Lisa had actually been training uh, with her material many years before coming to NAI as associate director. And uh, when she, she is really responsible for starting the certification program with NAI. She came to the board and as a, back then as a consultant, she volunteered to help get that going and organized a committee of people who were very experienced in the field and created the original certification program. But that course was valuable because not only, uh, I don't know, how it went with your job uh, at Brexville, but at my first visitor center job at a state park, they handed me kind of an empty building with a bunch of stuffed animals that were falling apart. Here's some money, you can improve it and turn it into something more useful. And I, I back then, I think the amount of money they were offering to complete the exhibitry and make it interesting was about $1,500. <laughs> oh, it's not very much money. I unfortunately did my first interpretive planning without any knowledge of interpretive planning. And uh, I think what I ended up with was okay. But if if I go back with eyes now after having worked with Lisa for 20 some years in interpretive planning workshops, I see it, I would see it entirely differently. That it helped you in what you were doing with your center? Oh, gosh, yes. So I learned so much from that class. And, you know, it, it allowed my staff and I to develop our Nature Center interpretive plan. And when I first got to Brexville Nature Center, you know, it, first of all, it's a 1939 WPA building. It's a small little cabin in the woods. So I think I had a staff of four when I started there. And our, our program numbers were down and we had a lot of stuffed animals too. So, um, you know, we, we wanted to increase our programs 
and be able to do more. And, and when we started to increase our programming and our numbers, then we were able to get more staff. And very quickly, we kind of outgrew that little cabin in the woods. So it was hard to do programming. We could do programming outside, no problem. But we, it was hard to do indoor programming there. So back around 2000, I think it was, we started planning for a new building, uh, like a, just a program center. So we developed our interpretive plan for that, the kind of programming we wanted to do. And, you know, we had, in fact, that was my project for uh, CIP, that it was that building. That's the, the interpretive plan for that building is what I did. And it took until 2018 for that to happen. Cleveland Metro Parks is, is mainly run on tax levies. So you can't just um, have money right away to go and build a new building. So it, it took a while for us to to get the money set aside for us. And it was the very last thing I was able to do before I retired. And it's just a beautiful program center now. It's actually bigger than the nature center. When I think that you say you retired in 2018, you missed out on running a park in the pandemic. I did. I retired just in time, didn't I? No kidding. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, I can't kind of can't imagine that. I watched here on uh, the big island of Hawaii, where tourism is a major thing, we get a million tourists a year in a normal year. Our resident population is about 180,000. And so five to six times as many as there are us. And yet they disappeared for two years. They were gone. And oh my, the other part of it was everybody liked them being gone. Uh, <laughs> The road congestion was gone. The lines in grocery stores or Costco or whatever were gone. And yet it's the economy. The income of these islands is very dependent on tourism. Some of the state parks I know during the pandemic were saying they got more visitation than normal because people were just frustrated. They couldn't go everywhere they wanted to. So they went to the local park. And I don't know whether that worked in Clevelander or not, but you weren't there, so I was not there. But um, they they did close the buildings for several months, and they were doing um, whatever they could online. And and yeah. but yeah, couldn't really do programming, and yeah, it was hard. They couldn't have visit visitors come in. People could still hike the trails, and they could you know rove on the trails and interact that way, but nothing inside well and of course that caused nai to start offering the certified interpretive guide as a virtual course and lisa and i had always just talked about it and thought that the interpretive guide course ought to be taught live not virtually but when it came along as a necessity because nai i think through the years we've recruited so many state park systems for instance where it was basic training for their staff and for some county parks like yours, that um, there was a demand there to keep offering the courses. So they went to virtual courses and we began teaching them out of our home in Hawaii and, it, and we're still doing it. We'll have one coming up September 25th. I enjoy it. It keeps me in contact with people in my profession. And as many this time already, I've got someone from Canada and someone from Alaska and uh, a lot of the people that will take the course are from remote locations where there isn't going to be a live 
in-person course taught near them. And so mm -hmm. they they would either have to have a lot of travel money or they would they could go to a virtual course for a lot less expense. And uh, it works out that way. Lisa continues to occasionally teach interpretive planning or contract management. October 13th, she's going to do a four-hour contract management course. But that was um, a component of the course we used to do when you took it. And it was designed to help people who worked at agencies who were going to hire a consultant understand how to manage a contract. What do you, how do you set deliverable expectations in writing so that you know you're getting what you want from the consultant? And of course, the consultant is getting a guarantee that you're going to pay them on time. You're going to review the documents on time, all of that sort of thing. So uh, she's got one coming up October 13th, and you can, a listener can learn more about that at artfeltassociates.com. My interpretive guide course will be up on interpnet.com, NAI's website. So we invite anyone who has an interest to look there. Now, I have this funny recollection of seeing you dressed like a buzzard. <laughs> well, I wasn't dressed like the buzzard, but I was standing right next to a person in costume. And oh, Cleveland okay. Metro, yeah, <laughs> Metro Parks is known for what we call buzzard day. And uh, every March 15th, the turkey vultures return to Hinkley, Ohio. So there was a park ranger back in the late 40s who who started noticing this. He he would he noticed that they always came back on the same date. So he he took note of that for several years and finally in 1957 they decided to have a celebration about the return of the the buzzards or the turkey vultures. And they didn't think anybody would come. Well, my gosh, I think there were a couple thousand people who showed up. And it, it was the start of a traditional program. Uh, Buzzard Day has happened every year since March 15th of 1957. So there's, there's always an official buzzard spotter. And Bob Hinkle did that until he retired. And then when he retired, I, was, um, I, I stepped into that role. So... Every March 15th, you have to be to the buzzard roost around 6.30 a.m., just waiting for that first buzzard to be spotted. It's a, it's a very well-known local media time slot. They come out and do live you know, television from that morning. And you know, radio stations from all over the country call up, and they want to know what time was that first buzzard spotted. So, yeah, it's it's a fun day. You know, we have a naturalist in costume, a buzzard costume. So I think the photo you saw, you know, we were just right next to each other. <laughs> I apologize for putting you in the outfit without. Uh... Oh, that's okay. I did wear the outfit for many years, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I think it's great. I remember hearing about the vent through all the years that I was working in, in the field. And uh, I think it's always terrific when an animal that is kind of not respected very much. I mean, I I started a raptor center in Pueblo, Colorado in 1981, and vultures were an occasional uh, animal that was brought into us injured or gunshot, and that we would try to get to where we could release it back to nature. But it was always one of the stories that we told children in our school programming and adult visitors that uh, imagine a world where there's 
no animal that cleans up things that die. Uh, mm -hmm. Just all bacterial decay and fungal decay of carcasses, the world would be a mess. But we have these animals that rely on uh, the death of other animals as a way to live. Right. It's a good thing. And what a great thing to celebrate it. I mean, special events are really important to nature centers, right? They are very, very important. Sure are. And because a lot of times they bring thousands of people out to your site and they get their first introduction to a nature center and realize they can go back on another day when it's not so crowded and walk the trails or or whatever. We we had the brilliant idea back in 1981 in Pueblo of doing a Halloween spook trail. And we had learned that Fontenelle Forest, and I don't remember where Fontenelle is, Nebraska, I want to say, but uh, was doing one. We didn't know what they did, but we just took the concept and that urban myth about there being razor blades and apples given to kids at Halloween uh, floated around. And we decided to do a trail that was called the Spooky Trail that had Johnny Appleseed with a live goat and had Merlin the Magician with a live great horned owl, had a Hopi Kachina that would come to life and dance around the campfire. And then we had the Super Spooky Trail that would have Jason with the hockey mask uh, would have a chainsaw massacre guy with a chainsaw that he could actually run, but had no chain on it. I'm thinking we're going to attract five or 600 people. We're charging a dollar per person to go on the trail. It's 1981. First night we open the trail. It's going to be only one night. 5,000 people show up. Wow. We had a traffic jam of a size I could not begin to manage. The local NBC affiliate came up to say, can I do a live interview with you? And I said, well, Greg, I'd love to talk to you, but I actually need you to run to King Supers and buy a couple hundred pounds of candy, if you would, because we need candy for people going on a trail. We bought enough for 500, not 5,000. <laughs> and he made two runs to the grocery store for us in between interviews. So uh, it was a fun night. But it was it was really awareness uh, when I went to Pueblo, steel mills were the fame of Pueblo. Actually, it was a steel mill there before uh, Colorado became a state. The steel mills had just, as I arrived that year I arrived, had laid off 5,000 people and Pueblo Army Depot closed, losing 5,000 jobs. So we had 20 plus percent unemployment. Out of work and hungry, eat an environmentalist was the bumper sticker that many cars had on. And uh, I was really aware that bringing families out to the nature center for a special event like that uh, melted that image of environmentalists being against the local community and against jobs and against the steel mills and all of that. And uh, over time, we really forged a very strong working relationship with local industry. Well, when I was at River Nature Center, we also did a, a Halloween program similar to yours. And yeah, Ken Gober and his staff before I was there um, came up with that program. They had the same issues. You know, they, they thought who would come? Well, they were overwhelmed. And so finally, when I was there, we ended up, we would give people, they were, it was a free program, but we would give time tickets. So you had to come at seven or 7.15 or 7.30. We had like a three hour you know, three hours of, and every 15 minutes, a, a hike would leave. 
and the hike was led by volunteers through the woods and there were it was a family friendly thing so we didn't have jason and the chainsaw and any of that other stuff but you know we had a witch's cauldron and we had someone dressed up as i don't know a caterpillar and it would metamorphose into a butterfly and just natural history type stations around there but yeah it was you're right families just loved coming to this and they didn't mind waiting in line and when they were done to their hike they got donut holes and some hot chocolate and it was just a really fun event i remember talking to senior citizens that i saw on the line who i knew didn't have any children or grandchildren with them and i said why did you come to the trail and they said well you light the trail with real jack-o'-lanterns and votive candles it's just beautiful to walk the through the forest at night with these pumpkins yeah. and we used to use the local girl scouts would come for a week before the event and carve jack-o'-lanterns we had 500 of them on the trail and uh, it was a spectacle it was really uh, cool by the by year five we had thirteen thousand people and it was running five nights wow yeah and we raised the price and it became such an important uh, fundraiser for us that we we couldn't quit doing it due to that but it it was uh it was a great public relations event for us because it brought families out and as you say i used to look at the line and it'd be three blocks long to get on the <laughs> and we didn't guide it we let them we just kind of metered them in a few feet apart and, yeah um, the boy scouts troops locally would run the trail and light the votive candles and because uh, they blow out and so we had um, adults stationed at places around the trail to keep small children from going on the super spooky trail it was it was a good event yeah so what was your other programming that you thought was uh kind of fun and you you enjoyed doing you mentioned aquatic well, you did some other things yeah Oh yeah. Yeah. I, well, of course my favorite were Creek walks. I would love taking families and kids into the creeks and macro invertebrate sampling, you know, kids love going in the water and getting wet. And, but then um, I think another, I also like to do astronomy programs. So I, I did a program. It was the Perseid meteor watch, which is every August 11th, 12th and 13th. And I would do a program people would have to register for it because you know if you're going to have cloudy skies you don't want everybody showing up and this program was at 4 a.m because that was the the prime time to see these meteors shooting through the skies and you know we had hundreds of people who wanted to come to this program it was amazing they would come drive up lay down in a damp field look up at the sky and it was just you know, the, watching the night sky is amazing. You can point out constellations to people if there's any planets up there. And then, you know, just watching for these meteors to go streaking through the sky is always fun. For whatever reason, that's never fascinated me. And yet I'm interested in what's out there in the universe. But uh, when I was first at the Nature Center, we used a lot of interns. And interns back then, <laughs> we paid them $100 a month uh, as a food stipend, we gave them a place to live that was very often kind of bunk beds in a small room. They said, oh, there's going to be, I forget, four or five planets line up at two in the morning uh, this Saturday night. Could we do a, 
a planet watch thing. And I said, sure, go ahead. I'm not going to get up at two in the morning. And, and they actually did get me up because uh, I thought would attract 20 or 30 people. They got the local astronomy club to set up four or five scopes. And it woke me up because my house was on the grounds of the nature center and there was honking and parking problems. And I went outside and I looked down, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 250, 300 people lined up behind these scopes to get to look at the planets lining up. And I'm, I'm just astonished. And uh, later, after I left the Nature Center 13 years later, they got funding to uh, uh, build a planetarium, a small planetarium on the property. Uh, but I'm, I'm really aware that the public loves it, even if I'm not the biggest fan, whatever. And it was a great event for us. And then we started to watch for those kind of things to come along. So great that you did that. Why Why do you think nature centers are such an important component of a community? Oh, gosh, they are so valuable for communities. They, they allow local teachers to bring their kids out of the classroom and, and come for, for hikes in the woods. They get an experience, you know, in nature instead of just reading about it in a book. They offer just programs for all ages, from preschool up to senior citizens. Uh, nature centers always have nice trails nearby. And I think most of the centers that I've been to, they have different um, levels of trails. So if you want to get a real difficult hike, you can do a, a longer hike. If you have a stroller or a wheelchair, they have some paved trails that you can take. And they're just, they provide just amazing programs. They allow people to, they, they try to teach people how, how to appreciate nature. And then if they appreciate nature, they're going to fall in love with it. And then they're going to want to, you know, support the park levies. They're going to want to look for political candidates that maybe help to support nature in, in some way. And they also provide a place for people to get away from, you know, the daily stress of life. It's, it's people can come and relax. They can just sit at a bird feeding window. They can go on a walk. They can go running through the park. They can get exercise at bird watching. There's just so many things that a nature center and a park offer people. It's, you know, it's a shame that some areas don't have parks. I know Cleveland, we have several parks, not just Cleveland Metro Parks, but we have Cuyahoga Valley National Park. We have Medina County Parks, Lorraine County Parks, and several other parks. Some some places just don't have that. So we're very lucky here in, in the Cleveland area. You said you retired in 2018. You're kind of young to be retired. Uh, I, I say that as the guy who moved around a lot. So I quit two different retirement programs that would have let me retire in my 50s. Instead, retired at I think, 68 or 69 and uh, with Social Security. But uh, how did you pull that off? Well, I, I always had in my mind that I was going to retire as soon as I could. So I, I got, I had 31 years in and I just decided I, you know, there's more to life than work and I want to be able to travel and spend time with friends and family and just, you know, do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. So that's kind of what I've been doing since 2018. And, you know, I, I always encouraged my staff. I said, 
put in your time and retire when you can because there's so much out in this world to see. You have to have, have time to get out and do that kind of thing. Well, have you had any interesting travel trips this year? Uh, this year, I just came back from Algonquin. And uh, before that, I was with you and Lisa. We were over in Africa. And oh my gosh, we were on that amazing African safari. It was just spectacular trip seeing elephants and lions and giraffes and hippos and elephants and so close to the safari vehicles it was amazing i kind of remember that that was <laughs> no that's great fun uh we were in tanzania we were with a guide that we have known for uh, i don't know 12 15 years gabby uh is amazing as a guide they take such good care of you. They're good naturalists. They're good interpreters. And uh, I remember we were in a, they, we had two Toyota Land Cruisers we were traveling in with a pop top so you take photos. And we got stuck in the mud in our vehicle once. And the we other- did. And weren't there some animals around us when this happened? Yeah, there was like, uh, what, five lions or three lions? Yeah, not far away. Uh, <laughs> And I just remember James and Gabby talking back and forth on their radios, figuring out who was going to get out and attach some sort of <laughs> web thing to pull one vehicle out with the other. But it it was excitement. I've watched them change tires in Lion Country and uh, get stuck and get pulled out. And I had a guide in Kenya once tell me, I said, have you ever gotten stuck by yourself? And he says, oh, yeah. He says, I was going through about a 200-foot mud puddle, and I got stuck. And he said, this was before we had radios in our vehicles. And I was by myself returning back to base camp. And uh, it was late in the afternoon. He said, I ended up being there all night. And a private oh. came up and laid on the vehicle and patted the windows. And I said, oh, my gosh. I cannot even imagine that. He says, well, now we have radios. And so you call your friend who's only a few miles away and they come and pull you out. But he said back then, he, he said it was a real experience to be here by yourself all night and up to your axles in mud. No, there's no opportunity to get out and devise any way to get out. So pretty cool. And you're a photographer as well. I am. I just love taking pictures. I've had a Nikon D90 for 20 some years. And, you know, that was, it was heavy. I lugged it over to Africa and I saw this nice little Nikon that you had. So I, just in the past couple of months, I, I purchased that new Nikon Z50. So that'll be going to Tanzania with me uh, next March. That's great. You're right. Uh, Lisa and I, uh, not every year, but, many years often put together an eco tour to either Tanzania or Rwanda where we've trained a lot of guides and uh, done, done a lot of planning work in Rwanda and uh, Sharon went with us in 2023 in March. Uh, we were very surprised that she turned right around and signed up to go again in 2024. So oh, yeah. It's going to be delightful. And I have a bunch of my old nature center staff from Pueblo who are going to be on that trip. So you're going to get acquainted with them and they're great people and wonderful friends. So any place you want to go that you haven't been? Oh gosh, I have such a long bucket list. Yes. I, right now I'm trying to hit a lot of the national parks. 
So um, I want to go to Alaska, Hawaii, Montana, Oregon, some of the, a lot of the Western states. I've been to a lot of the Southern and uh, Eastern and Southwestern, but haven't done the Northwest much. So I want to hit those in the next several years. Well, I hope you get to do that. And if you get to Hawaii, I hope you'll come and visit. You know, we've got a perfectly good volcano just uh, 60 miles east of us that occasionally rumbles and flows. And so, but, but we enjoy seeing our old friends and colleagues here on the island. So I hope you'll do that. It's been a pleasure to catch up again. These are not conversations. We were talking about the lions right outside the window when we were in uh, Tanzania. So great to get to greater depth and learn more about your journey and the field of being a naturalist and interpreter and a guide. So I look forward to our trip this coming March. And thanks again for being on the podcast with me. You are welcome. And I am looking forward to that trip also, Tim. Well, aloha. Aloha to you. Thanks for joining Sharon and I today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Next week on Friday, I'll be talking to Christian Guernes of Isthmian Adventures in Panama. Join us for that. I want to remind you that on September 25th, I have a Certified Interpretive Guide virtual course via Zoom, and you can register at interpnet.com, pull down under their certification training calendar. October 13th, Lisa will offer a contract administration course via Zoom. You can register for that at heartfeltassociates.com. And as always, I want to thank Mark Stoffel for his beautiful mandolin music. In this case, Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week.